Nearly a decade ago, I found myself filling the hours by listening to podcasts while my husband, Brooks, was training with the U.S. Army. Walking the streets of our Army post, I dreamt of creating something for women that bridged that gap between sermon audio and small talk. It was on the floor of my tiny closet on post that that very dream, the Dream for the Journey Women podcast, came to fruition in June of 2017. And today, by God's grace, Journey Women is now a not-for-profit ministry with the aim of moving women to know and love God more. Our monthly and one-time givers help make our mission possible. If you'd like to support the work that we do, you can make a tax-deductible donation by visiting journeywomen.org forward slash give. Thank you for investing in the work of Journey Women. Welcome to the Journey Women Podcast. I'm your host, Hunter Bielis. Life's a journey we were never meant to walk alone. We all need friends along the way. On the Journey Women Podcast, we'll chat with mentors about gracefully navigating the seasons and challenges we face on our journeys to glorify God. Today, we get to hear from Yannick Christos Wahab about why Jesus came to die. As you'll hear, this episode was actually inspired by a conversation that I shared with a friend who asked me, why did it have to be Jesus? How can Jesus actually pay the debt that I owe because of my sin? This is such an important question for us to really know and understand, and today, Yannick is going to help answer it. So you'll know a little bit more about him. Yannick Christos Wahab is from Nigeria and was born and raised in London, where he is now a pastor at Stockwell Baptist Church. He's a husband and a father, and he also co-authored a book called The Cross in Four Words, published by The Good Book Company. Welcome to the Journey Women podcast, Yannick. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. It's a joy to be here. Well, as people can probably tell, you are not stateside here in the U.S. You're in London and you have one of the coolest accents. Lauren is also on the call right now. She's one of the Journey Women team members. And she told me that before we asked you to join us, she was like, he's going to be super theologically sound. He's going to be very cool on any topic. And he has the most killer accent of all. Most of that's definitely not true, but it's a joy to be with you. And yeah. I found out about you through your book published by The Good Book Company. It's called The Cross in Four Words. And you're actually a pastor at Stockwell Baptist Church in London. But we actually have a more personal connection to you through Lauren, who is on the Journey Women team. So Lauren, I would love for you just to get to tell a little bit about your friendship with Yannick, how you guys met, and some of the special things about your friendship with him. Yes. Oh my gosh. It is such a joy to be able to talk to both of you at the same time. I had the privilege of getting to know Yannick several years ago during our time when we were living in Birmingham. He and my husband were in seminary together and Yannick actually officiated our wedding. I cry sometimes when I think about the beautiful homily that he did at our wedding on Ephesians. He's just a treasured friend to the both of us. And I asked Matthew what the listeners needed to know about Yannick. He said, it's very important to testify to the fact that Yannick is a very good ping pong player. And no matter who you are, he's better than you at FIFA. What is FIFA? Oh, Yannick, you can explain it better than I can. Oh, FIFA, yes. So FIFA's a a game, it's a football game, unlike PlayStation or (laughs) Xbox. I'm actually not as great as I once was, uh, sadly. And so I'm not sure if what Matthew said is still true, but it was true. Like I was... (laughs) I was, was I was very good at FIFA, but I haven't played in a long time. I guess ministry 
yeah, just has a way of getting in the way of console. So how long have you been pastoring? Do you have a family? Those types of details that I'm sure the listeners would love to hear. Yeah, so been here ever since I finished at Beeston Divinity School. So that's where I was in Birmingham, Alabama. I was in Beeston Divinity School where I got to meet Lauren and Matthew. And let me just briefly say, I love these guys so much. They really took me in, just our family to me. And so, yeah, from London originally, parents from Nigeria, but went out to study in Birmingham and came back. So finished 20, December 2017. Me and Matthew graduated at the same time, Lauren's husband, and came back. And then February 2018, started work in a church called Brookston Local Church, uh, which was this small church called Church Plant. I can say it was cool because really, the coolness had nothing to do with me. Really like young kind of thing. Uh, so that was February 2018. And then in September 2019, Brixton Local Church merged with Stockwell Baptist Church. Uh, so Stockwell Baptist Church was this... Yeah, it's a church in London, South London, historic church, uh, 1866 was founded. And Matthew, Lauren, uh, Lauren's husband would, would love this, but Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon preached the first ever sermon at the church. Um, and so it's got a long history. That is so cool. Yeah, so the first ever sermon. So he wasn't here regularly, but he came to, to open it up. So I'm still hoping that like on the pulpit, He's left something, you know, just a little bit of like special <laughs> spirit, a uh, special part of the Holy Spirit for me. But yeah, so we merged together. Stockwell Baptist Church was an older church uh, with a lot more older people. And so, yeah, now we have just the full range. And yeah, ministry in London very different to Birmingham, Alabama. And yeah, I'm sure we don't have time to get into it, but I love it. Yeah, it's a real privilege to, to do what I do. So yeah, most importantly, family-wise. I was going to say. <laughs> Kitan, who is, yeah, the most amazing wife. Yeah, a blessing and a support. Uh, so married to her, and we have a 10-month-year-old, soon to be 11 months, called Karis. She's a real, like, lockdown baby, born in the middle of lockdown. Uh, but she's so friendly, uh, really joyful. And she just reminds me that, like, yeah, you know, ministry, sometimes you get so into things are so heavy. And so, yeah, she's just a blessing to just laugh and smile and Love, yeah, love Kitson and Karis. I'm, I'm a blessed man. I would love to add too, because Yannick won't say this about himself, but and you're going to hate me for saying it, but Yannick is the most brilliant person I've ever met, but he's also the most humble person I've ever met. And so I know that'll come through when you hear him talk, but I just wanted to say that I see that in you and I know that it makes you such an incredible pastor, husband and father. And just hearing you talk about your family makes me so happy. So I just wanted to say that. Because you won't say it about yourself. And... Well, thanks, Lauren. Again, not not true, but I appreciate the sentiment. And yeah, you know how, how grateful I am for you. So yeah, it's a, it's a joy to be here. Well, I think one of the marks of a Christian is humility. Like you know people who have really drawn near to the cross of Christ when they're just in full recognition of their need for Jesus. And that's really what we wanted to talk about today. Why the cross is so central to Christianity and how Christ crucified is really the center of what we believe as Christians. So Yannick, could you talk to us a little bit about why it's imperative that we keep the cross of Christ central in our faith? I think it's important to keep it central because we tend to drift away from it. It takes intentionality to keep the cross central. I think it's 1 Corinthians 2 where Paul talks about 
he resolved or he determined to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. I always find it striking that like, yeah, it's something he has to do. Like he, he, he has to set out to do it. It's almost as if Paul knows that there's a tendency we have to, to drift away from it. And I think we drift away from the cross for lots of reasons. I think one is just like familiarity, right? I would say familiarity breeds contempt. So you hear about, if you're a Christian, if you grew up in church, you hear about the cross all the time. Uh, I'm sure like loads of your listeners would have been like, oh, this episode is about the cross. Yeah, I know about the cross. Tell me something different. Like, you know, me, myself, like naturally, I'd be more interested in some other topic that's maybe a bit more niche. And so we, we can get so familiar with it that we actually lose sight of its centrality. But also I think the cross is, it's offensive. And so I think because it's offensive, because it's so different to what the world is looking for, there's a tendency that we can kind of drift towards things that there's more overlap, you know, how to be a good parent, how to be a good husband, how to be a good wife, how to uh, deal with singleness, things that there, there, there tends to be like a lot more overlap and we think other people really want to hear. And yet we can lose sight of just how important the cross is. And I think it's important, it's central. The reason why we need to keep it central is if the Bible is a story about how God is bringing us back to himself, then at the heart of the story of the Bible is the gospel. And at the heart of the gospel is the cross. There's always a tendency to drift away from it, but it's so central. And I was thinking about this. I think one way that you see that is actually in the structure of the gospels themselves. So the Bible has these books called the gospels. And the gospel is all about Jesus. But it's amazing, right? Jesus lived like 33 years. Most of those years, we have no information about at all. Most of that focuses, most of the gospels focus on the public ministry of Jesus, three and a half years. But even within that, so much of the gospel focuses actually on the last week of Jesus. Probably about 25% of each of the gospels is really about just that last week. It's almost as if, you get to the triumphant entry and everything just really slows down. And so even in the structure of the Gospels, it's trying to tell us that actually at the heart of the good news of Jesus is the cross. And I think uh, if that's true of the Gospels, uh, if that's true of the structure of the whole Bible, then it needs to be true of our preaching, our teaching, but also just true of our own personal meditation and thinking that we keep. Uh, the cross central and it's one of those things that again it seems so like oh yeah I get the cross but actually I think thinking about this was just really exciting like the more I f- you think about it the more just just boundless the significance the impact of the cross and so it's something we can get used to but it's actually something that we can't ever lose our wonder at. Yes I know I need that reminder just to not allow it to lose its luster and its wonder And to me, as a Christian, I can hear about the cross and I know that it's such good news. Like to me, it is good news. But to a lot of people, the message of the cross is a stumbling block. And why is that? How is it such a stumbling block? And at the same time, when it does have the the power to save people from all nations when they turn to Jesus? Probably the passages have 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 probably most explicitly deal with this issue. Um, So the cross is a stumbling block. The Bible says that again and again. And I think it's a stumbling block fundamentally because it's an attack on our pride. It really does attack our ego. 
So the cross is the end to any idea that we can save ourselves. But the cross also puts an end to any idea that like, okay, we're broken. We just need a little bit of help. So, so people are very comfortable with the idea. We are very comfortable with the idea of Jesus as this good man who's this good teacher. And one of the reasons I think for that is, is that it basically, that idea of Jesus comes with a certain idea of us, which is we're, we're just, we're misguided. We're just not quite sure what to do. And if someone would just come and show us, we can do it. And so the idea of Jesus as teacher, that's comfortable. When you start thinking of Jesus on the cross, if we say that Jesus, the son of God, ends up on the cross, the question then is, why is he on the cross? And if the answer to that is what the Bible says it is, our sin, then the cross of Jesus Christ tells us something about how serious our problem is. So, so the, the, the solution almost tells us just how the, the depth of the problem. So if it takes God dying to deal with the issue of our sin, then our sin cannot be a light issue. It can't just be that we're misguided. It can't be that we're just a bit misdirected. It must be that there is something fundamentally wrong with us. And, and that's what the cross demonstrates. The cross demonstrates that we are, we are really, really sinful. We're broken, but we're also sinful. And our sin is to that extent that it takes God to die for us. Um, I think the other thing as well is that the cross is foolish. It's not some great philosophical thing of, you know, how, you know, God can save us, that, that somehow is about this plan that involves just our intellect and our brains. Now, of course, it's smart, it's intelligent, it's, it's all those things, but it's fundamentally, in one sense, it's foolish. Uh, it doesn't take a PhD to, to, to actually believe the cross. And when we look at what the Bible has to say, it's that God has done it intentionally. God has saved us in such a way that it doesn't privilege our intelligence, it doesn't privilege our power, it doesn't privilege our social status. For us to be saved, we must believe that Jesus died on the cross. And actually, whereas we go through the rest of our lives where our intelligence is relevant, our social status is relevant, all those things are relevant, they give us some privilege. One of the things that happens in the cross is that actually we are all leveled and all of us are sinners, and all of us are utterly hopeless. And so where we are used to having some pride in ourselves, the cross empties that. And so we don't want to hear that we're that bad. We recognize that we're not perfect, and most people would say that, but the cross says something fundamentally far worse than that. It's not just that we're not perfect. We're actually utterly broken. We're, we're wicked. We're actually utterly beyond help. And so unless we can accept that, uh, the cross is always a stumbling block. If the question then is, how does it become a means of salvation? Why can I say, why can you say it's good news? It's by the power of God. It's not an intellectual thing fundamentally. It's actually the work of the Holy Spirit that people hear that message. And for thousands of years, I've heard that message and have recognized that that's good news that people hear that message and recognize that actually they're hopeless apart from God, that people from every kind of social group, uh, age group, different nationalities can hear that message and believe is really testament to, to the work of God and opening eyes. And so 
yeah, from beginning to the end, the cross, it humbles us and it saves us in such a way that we can't boast. This is already making me feel uh, just a weight lifted and just uh, drawing near to the cross. I'm like, you know, I can't do a lot of things, but I can do that. (laughs) So it is good news over here this morning. But I was talking with a friend of mine a couple of months ago, and she's been exploring Christianity. And she was saying, you know, I I understand fundamentally that there is something wrong with me, like you were saying, that, that I am a sinner. Um, And I understand that something needs to be done about that. But she was like, why did it have to be Jesus? Like, she's like, I just, I don't understand how this person, this guy from Galilee, like how he could possibly serve as a substitute for what I've done wrong. So why Jesus? Why not somebody else? Why did it have to be this guy from Galilee that died for our sins? That's a great question. I think, what I found most helpful uh, is a guy called Anselm. He lived about a thousand years ago and he, he wrote a book called Why God Became Man. And he's really wrestling through this question that your friend had, um, which is, yeah, why, why Jesus? Why does it have to be Jesus? And, and in essence, what he says is that it must be Jesus because Jesus is the God man. So the Bible tells us that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. He fully becomes a human being and yet he's fully God. And the reason why that's important is that essentially man has to pay the penalty for sin. Like we are sinners. We are the ones that owe God. There is a sense in which we are guilty before God and justice demands that as human beings, we pay back Christ. Right, that's how justice works. Right, we we have to do that, and yet, uh, as Anselm talks through it, it's also true that actually we cannot pay that price. That actually sin is so serious that we as human beings cannot fully pay that price. So we have to pay that price, and yet we cannot. The only person that can pay that price is ultimately God Himself, and yet as human beings, we are the people that have to pay it, and so. God in his great wisdom gives us Jesus, who is the God man. And so as man, he can take our place. He really can take our place because he really is one of us. He really does become human. He's 100% human. He's not like a half God, half man, kind of Hercules kind of thing. He's actually fully God and fully man. So because he's fully man, he really can take our place. And yet it's because he's fully God that his death, in his death, he really can take the punishment for our sins. No one else could do that. No one else could take that punishment for us. If I died, let's say I died for our sins. Let's say I was the person to die for sin. Well, the issue is, number one, I, as a human being, cannot bear the full weight of sin. But the second thing as well is just that I'm a sinner myself. So if I die, I die for my own sin. And so Jesus is both, firstly, he's the God-man, but also he's perfect. And that means that when he dies, his death isn't for his own sin, which means his death can be for our sin. And so really it has to do with the identity of Jesus. It's because of who Jesus is that his death can mean what it means for us. Life is crazy sometimes, and finding time to sit down and read the Bible can be difficult. That is why I love Dwell. When I can't find time to read the Bible, I can listen to it. 
The voices reading the Bible are soothing. They're not your normal narrators. Plus, you can choose calming background music and adjust the pace of the narrator's voice to get things just right. Dwell's newest release is called Dwell Daily, a fresh, thoughtfully crafted devotional that immerses you in the word, allowing you to pray it, meditate on it, and so much more. If you're looking to deepen your engagement with the Bible this year, Dwell Daily is worth checking out. I cannot recommend Dwell enough to help you orient your mind to the life-giving Word of God throughout your day. Go to dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen to receive your 25% discount today. Again, that's dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen for your 25% discount to subscribe and spend time in God's Word. Given Christ being fully God, fully man, I guess centering around his intentions and his heart and going to the cross. So did Jesus actually want to die or was he just submitting to the father's will? You see him pray, not my will, but your will be done. So what was it that compelled Jesus himself to go to his death? Yeah, I think this is a really helpful topic. And I know that people, yeah, just pastorally often struggle with this. Sometimes there's this idea of God's just angry. Someone needs to pay for it. Jesus draws the the wrong straw and, you know, uh, there we go. Uh, Jesus, you're up. And part of that comes from, there is language in the Bible that makes it clear that Jesus dies in submission to the will of the Father, right? Isaiah 53 tells us that it's the will of God to crush him. In Gethsemane, Jesus prays, not my will, but your will be done. But it's important that we don't misunderstand that because the Bible is also very clear that Jesus dies of his own will. Jesus dies willingly because he loves us. And we see that all over the place. Uh, One of the clearest passages on this, I think it's John 10, where Jesus says, look, no one takes my life away from me. I lay down my life. This is something that Jesus does willingly. Uh, Galatians 2, Paul can speak of how Jesus loved him and gave himself up for him. In other words, Jesus dies for us because he loves us. It's something that Jesus wants to do. And And maybe the the passage that stands out to me the most in Ephesians 5, uh, in this passage about husbands and wives, the example is that husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So Jesus in the cross is this great act of love to buy his bride. So you can't read the Bible faithfully and not see that actually the cross is the will of Jesus Christ because he loves us as sinners. So even in our sin and in our mark, Jesus set his love on us, and that's what drove him to the cross. Again, sometimes I think we we think of the cross as the cross happened so that God can love us or so that Jesus can love us. But that's not how the Bible tells the story of the cross. The cross happens because God already loves us, and he loves us at the point of our sin. And so, yes, it's true, Jesus said, you know, not my will, but your will be done. But again, what's happening in the garden is that Jesus, as a human being, has a very real human desire to avoid suffering, right? When we see Jesus in the garden, what you're seeing is that Jesus is really human. He's not some robot. He's really human. And there is a good natural desire that we we don't want to suffer. And yet it's Jesus's will to go to the cross. Jesus says it in the garden, right? If I wanted to, I could pull angels down. And yet his desire, because of his great love for us, 
he dies. And so, yes, it's his submission to the Father. And so Jesus is this great example of what it looks like for us to follow God through suffering. And yet it's just also this great love he has for his bride, to buy his bride, to wash his bride. And so, yeah, it's really important that we don't separate those two, that we hold those two. Man, that in and of itself is just such a humbling thought. And, you know, I think if we were to ask the listeners, like, what is the message of the gospel? They would probably say something like this, like, Jesus died for our sins. And you're talking about that here, but can you detail a little bit more deeply, like what it is that Christ's death actually accomplished? Like what did Christ's death do? Yeah, I think you can only hint at it, like just in the time we have, just because again, I think sometimes we think, oh yeah, that's simple. It's actually so multifaceted. When, When you think about what the cross achieves, it achieves a lot. So so one thing it achieves is that on the cross, Jesus defeats sin and death, right? Uh, You see that in in places like Colossians 2, um, that Jesus actually defeats death through his own death. There's an old guy, right? old guy, John Owen. He has a book called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. That actually what you see in the cross is that in this very weird way, Jesus, by dying, he actually defeats the power of sin and death. So death has this chokehold on us. We know that because death is undefeated. Every person that has been born has died, no matter how great they are, no matter how intelligent they are, no matter how powerful they are, no matter how long they've lived, they die. Death is this great enemy that we have. And Jesus, in his death, actually defeats death. Now, that's true, right, in the, of the resurrection. But it's also true, even when you think specifically of the cross, that actually in the cross, Jesus, in this very unexpected way, he defeats death, right? He takes the power of death onto himself and he defeats it. So, so one thing is this victory over sin, this victory over death that we see in the cross. So that's one thing that the Bible is clear on. Another thing that you see is actually that in the cross of Jesus Christ, we are freed from sin. And so the Bible says that we are born sinners. And one of the the things that means is that we are slaves to sin. We are addicted to sin. We cannot help but sin. Now, it's not something, it's not as if we are forced against our will to sin. It's not like we really don't want to sin but we're forced to do it. It's actually a slavery of love. We, we so love sin that we sin all the time. And given the choice, we do it. Every single time, we'll choose it. So there's a sense in which we choose freely, and yet there's a sense in which that choice is conditioned by the fact that we just love sin. And so one of the things, and, and Romans 6 is a great passage on this, one of the things that happens on the cross is that Jesus, in our place, He dies, and in that death, he puts an end to that life of slavery to sin, such that if you're a believer, you can know that that life of being a slave to sin, being in bondage to sin, that life is gone. And in his resurrection, Jesus offers us a new life where we can be slaves to righteousness. And and so just very practically, the cross of Christ means that if we're Christians and we're struggling with a sin and we've been struggling with the same sin, for years and years, and we feel like we can't get out, 
the cross reminds us that at the cross, that sin, that bondage to sin has been dealt with. We're no longer to slave to sin because of the cross of Christ. But again, there's so many other things, right? You, you could say that at the cross, the wrath of God, the punishment that our sins deserve, and I think this is very central, that the punishment that our sins deserve, Jesus takes it upon himself at the cross so that for those who are trusting in Jesus, there would be no condemnation. So from Genesis 3, when we sin, we fall into sin, what happens is that this world ever since then has been experiencing the judgment of God. So I think we often speak of this world being broken, and that's helpful. This world is broken. But I think the Bible goes further to say this world is cursed. And it's cursed by God. This world is actually under the judgment of God. Um, um, that when we see all the wrong things in this world, even though not all of those things are about a particular person's sin, nevertheless, we can say that the reason why things go wrong in this world is because of sin. Sin is the reason why things go wrong. And so, and the, this, these things that go wrong are an example of God's judgment against sin. God is angry with sin. And the amazing thing on the cross is that Jesus takes that judgment that we deserve, that curse that is naturally belongs to us. He takes that upon himself so that once we are united with him, we can know that we are no longer facing the judgment of God. God is no longer, God is not angry with us. And again, that's great news because it means that not just in this life, but very importantly, when we stand before God on the final day, we can have assurance that despite the fact that we are sinners and we've sinned, despite the fact that we naturally deserve God's judgment, Jesus has taken that judgment in our place, right? So the cross of Christ means that there's victory over sin and death. It means there's freedom from sin. It means that the judgment of God has been taken. And it means so many more things, right? And I think that's the thing to get is that the cross of Christ is, is, is multifaceted. There's this thing that you could look at from so many different angles, and you can see just the beauty of this diamond from so many different angles because the cross is at the center of all that God has done for us. And so, yeah, those are some of the things I think that the Bible would tell us. Man, that is so encouraging and so humbling too, just the fact that despite my love for sin and our love for sin, that God would choose to make a way for us to be near to him is the most humbling, beautiful, gracious, merciful thing I've I've ever heard and experienced. How um, Christ's death leads to the freedom, forgiveness, and justice that we experience as Christians. Yeah, great question. So I think freedom, and again, the Bible exp- expresses this in different ways, but I think Christ's death leads to our freedom in two ways. One, which I guess I've spoken about a bit, which is that Again, we're slaves to sin, we're in bondage to sin, we love sin. And that bondage is so much so that there's no hope for us in our slavery to sin. There's no amount of improvement that can change it. Like we, we by nature, are defined by this bondage to sin. What happens in the death of Christ is that actually that life dies. And it's actually what we symbolize in baptism. 
But that that life that's just addicted to sin, there's actually no hope for that. That just has to die. And the good news is that that death can happen without us having to experience it because Jesus does it in our place. Glorious exchange where, again, what's true of Jesus becomes true of us, uh, such that, again and again, the New Testament can say stuff like, you've died. You were crucified with Christ. So, so that life that was, again, in bondage to sin has died, which means we now get a new start. That new start is not something that we can um, earn. And in life, typically, right, you don't get a new start. Right? You, your history goes with you. In the death of Jesus Christ, that history of slavery to sin, that life is actually, it dies. And kind of like the video games, like with Mario, you know, the great thing about Mario, right? You know, you're jumping, you're trying to jump on those things um, <laughs> and survive. And then you slip up and you die. And it's tragic. But the great thing is you just get a new life, right? There you go. There's a new life, right? Well, real life isn't like Mario, right? Typically, that's not how things are. And yet in the death of Christ, you do actually get a new life, right? So, so, so that's one way that you see this freedom. But another way that you see it is actually this sense in which we are we're slaves to sin. We actually need to be bought out of that slavery. And this is where a lot of the language of redemption comes in that God in Christ redeems us from that slavery to sin, right? So in the Old Testament, right, with slavery, one of the ways that a slave could be made free is if someone paid the price to redeem that slave. That's another way that the Bible speaks about this freedom is that actually the death of Jesus Christ is this price that's paid such that we can now be free. We can, we're no longer slaves. And we see pictures of this in Israel being slaves to Egypt and God redeeming Israel from Egypt. But that's the same thing that God does uh, in the cross. So, so that's one way that we see how the cross achieves freedom. Uh, forgiveness, I think, again, has to do with this idea of the fact that we owe God a debt, that God is angry with sin. And I think this is something that we... In our culture, and it's always been true, but I, maybe particularly in our culture, the sense that our sin deserves punishment and that God is actually angry with sin, it's difficult for us. We, I think, live in a culture where we often think of sin as brokenness, and it's true. All sin is brokenness. But sin is actually also rebellion, which means, in one sense, when we speak of sin... We're speaking of ourselves as victims, and that's true, right? We are, in one sense, victims, but we are also culprits. We're criminals. That's also a way in which the Bible tells us to think about our sin. And because of that, we have this judgment hanging over us. As Jesus says in John 3, whoever does not believe in the Son, the wrath of God remains on him. There is a sense in which we are heading towards a God who is just, right? One of the big issues that people have with the Christian faith is the problem of evil, right? If there's a good God, why is there so much wrong? Why does he allow evil? And, and there's so many things that we could say to try and get to some response to that. But, but one of the fundamental responses to the problem of evil is that it's judgment day, that God is going to judge, that 
all the things that have gone wrong, God is going to make right. That all those who have done evil and wicked things, God's going to set that to right. And so that's good news. And yet it's bad news because the Bible says every single one of us have sinned. And when God comes to punish the bad guys, that's good news, right? You know, you're watching a TV show. It's always good news when the good guys defeat the bad guys. Like that's the moment you're looking for. That's good news, but it's unfortunate news for us because the Bible says we are those bad guys. We deserve that punishment. And so God, and yet God in his mercy, what God does is that God actually provides his son. Jesus comes and Jesus takes that punishment so that we can be forgiven, so that we don't have to bear that punishment. And so that God is just in forgiving us because God really has dealt with sin, but he's dealt with sin in Jesus Christ. And then there's the, the, the question of the cross and justice. And again, I think one thing that the cross does is that the cross allows for us to say that God is both just, in the language of Romans 3, he's both just and the justifier of the wicked. Right? In other words, God has forgiven us in such a way not to forget justice, but in such a way that takes justice seriously. Again, we live in a world which thankfully I think is ever more attuned to concerns of justice. You know, thank God for that, right? We're just more aware that this world is really unjust. We're more aware that actually people do really wicked things and get away with it. We're more aware that actually, you know, what goes around comes around isn't actually true. People do all kinds of things and live, seemingly live happily ever after. And so we need a just God. We need a God who will bring about justice. And yet we also need God's mercy, right? Um, right? And what you see in the cross is the cross provides this means of justification, a means by which we can stand before God on the final day And even though we're guilty, we can receive the verdict of innocent because Jesus has taken the verdict of guilty in our place. And again, if you've grown up in church and you probably would have heard this lots of times in lots of different ways, but we cannot lose sight of the fact that though God did not have to, God in his mercy, he's done this. We have freedom, we have forgiveness, we have justice in the cross. Um, And that's something that we are marveling at now. And I think for all of eternity, we will be marveling at. The cross is at the heart of this, just again, mystery of what God has done for us in Christ. And it's something that we have to remind ourselves of again and again. Yes. As we marvel on this, you're leading us to see God's character and how that, yeah, that leads us to see the joy and the beauty of the cross. It is because God is holy and just and righteous and kind and all of those things that the cross was needed, that our sin needed to be paid for. And it's just so beautiful. So how is it that marveling at the cross, at what Jesus did on that moment for us, how does that change us and how might we marvel on it more and more? I mean, I think when it's the question about how it changes us, I think the most fundamental thing I could say um, is that it humbles us. Cross people are humble people. People that believe in the cross are humble. And as Christians, we can sometimes be very prideful. Uh, I can be so pri- I'm very prideful. You, you know, you, you think a lot about, you know, what you know or how you've lived or what you've done. 
yeah, we, we compare each other. We do that all the time. We compare ourselves to other people. And we think, oh, you know, I think it's Bonhoeffer who had this quote about how when you first meet someone, one of the things you first do is subconsciously, you're weighing up what advantage you have over them. So like you, you speak to them and you're like, oh, okay, you know, um, oh, this person's pretty smart, you know. Ah, but I probably earn more money than them. Or, you know, that you know, that that they're, you know, really successful, but they're not really sociable. Like, okay, I've got that on them. Right. Like we we were constantly in our minds trying to find some advantage that we have for ourselves. You know, you've got me on that, but you know, I've got this. And the course empties all of that. Because when it comes to the most fundamental thing about being right with God, all the things that we have mean absolutely nothing, right? Um, and so the fruit of that is, is humility. The fruit of that is that actually we don't put stock in any of the things we have. Right? Philippians 3, Paul talks about how he counts all these things that he had. He counts them all as rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ. And so cross people are humble people. There's nothing about you that, that commends you to God. You might be something in, in, you know, certain people might think a lot about you, you know, you might be someone that people look up to. None of that matters whatsoever before God when it comes to the issue of your, your standing before God. And so the cross reminds us that actually we are all fundamentally the same. We have no right to, there's no boasting that we can have. Uh, except to boast in God's grace to us. That makes us really humble people. And that humility then affects how we treat people, particularly how we treat those who may be of a different social class, a lower social class, or people that we that society thinks, uh, you know, treats a certain way. There is nothing about us that commends us to God apart from the cross of Christ. And even our good works, even as Christians, right? Even as Christians, our good works as Christians, which happen, right? The spirit works in us. We do good works. But even those good works aren't the reason why we will stand before God and be justified. It's all about the mercy of God in the cross. And Jesus tells this wonderful parable, Luke 18, about this Pharisee and the tax collector, right? And uh, they both go to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee prays and he says, you know, God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector, you know, fast, I pray. I'm faithful to my wife. And, and the amazing thing about that Pharisee that I find quite interesting is, is one, we have no reason to think he's lying. He's probably, the things he says are, are probably true. He is a fairly moral man. And he's not like probably that tax collector, right? He, he is actually, you could say, a, a more moral man than the tax collector. But the second thing is, actually, he thanks God. Like, I think sometimes we take that mockingly, but I think it's right to assume, right? He's, he's actually thanking God. like. One sense, like, I thank God you've made me like this. You know, this is, this is one sense, your grace. Like, you know, and so here's this man who's, he's a moral man, and he's even thanking God for that. And yet Jesus compares him to this tax collector. And when the tax collector goes in, he stands far off and he says, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, he's the one that goes home justified. And I think the big thing is this that even the works that God works in us are not the basis of our justification. They're not the basis of why we can stand before God. And so God might have done amazing things in your life as a Christian, 
You may be a totally different person. You may have changed in lots of ways. And thank God for that. Praise God for that. But that's not the reason why you have any confidence before God. It actually still comes back to the cross and what God did on the cross. And that makes us really humble people. And there's other things we could say, but I think that's the fundamental thing. And when it comes to then how do we do that? How do we meditate on the cross? Yeah, we can't do more than actually reading through the Bible. I think particularly reading through the letters, the epistles, particularly. I say that because the the cross, you see the cross obviously in the Gospels, but it's often in the letters that the, the meaning of the cross is really explained. And so reading through those letters, I think, and every time asking yourself the question, what does this text tell me about what the cross has done for me? What does this text tell me about what the cross has achieved? But the cross is at the root of everything. Again, even our holiness, our strive for holiness, it has to be rooted in the cross. And so, yeah, resist that part of you that tells you, oh, yeah, the cross, yeah, yeah, I get that. Ah, oh, Good Friday, another Good Friday message. Ah, oh, yeah, sure, I had it all before. The more we, we drink of the cross, the more like Jesus Christ will be. Uh, the more humble we'll be, and the more motivated we'll be to fight sin. Because again, it's the cross that reminds us that our bondage to sin, that life of to sin is dead, and we now have a new life. And so um, the more we can meditate on the cross, yeah, the more like Jesus Christ will be. And I think we do that by really just reading God's word and praying through I'm so grateful for those simple resources. We'll definitely obviously include the scripture references that you've um, kind of embedded throughout the episode in the show notes and also your book. I find your book so accessible and helpful and really just drew me um, to scripture. So uh, thank you so much for putting pen to paper alongside Kevin DeYoung. And who who was the other person who co-authored with you? A guy called Richard Koken. It was a conference. Uh, We did a conference and the Good Book Company offered to just turn the sermons from the conference into the book. So it was great. I didn't really have to do anything. But yeah, um, so it's uh, Richard Koken, Kevin DeYoung, and myself. Well, I found it so helpful and accessible. And I always love, like we typically ask, what are the resources that you'd recommend on this topic? And it's my favorite when people just come back and say, really just read your Bible. Because <laughs> I only have time for one book. So <laughs> that's one of my simple joys. But Yannick, it's been such a joy to get to know you through this conversation. I just feel so helped by it personally. My uh, gaze has been uh, lifted to the cross and I'm grateful for that. But simultaneously, I'm really grateful for this resource that's just going to help me better testify to what Christ did for us. You have had an impact, I know, on my friend Lauren here, uh, far greater than I even realize and than you realize. And one of the questions that we ask every guest who comes on the Journey Women podcast is actually... We'd love to hear from you who it is that's had the greatest impact on your uh, journey with Jesus. This really can be answered in whatever way you want, but we'd love to hear about how uh, the body of believers, how God uses uh, our brothers and sisters just to encourage and admonish us as you've done for us today. So who is it that's had the greatest impact on your journey with Jesus? Uh, thanks for asking. Um, I think I'm a cheat and just run through just really quickly. <laughs> the first person to say that my dad, my dad, yeah, my parents, you know, sometimes it's so easy to, like as someone who grew up in a Christian home, 
again, familiarity breeds contempt. And so sometimes, like, growing up a Christian home, you're like, oh, yeah, your parents, yeah, 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 or that. But, like, you know, the youth camp leader or, you know, that person, you know. And growing up in a home where I was taught the Bible, mm. uh, I was taught that the Bible was the word of God, I, I cannot ever put a price on that. Um, and to be with parents and um, who, you know, who lived that out, um, but yeah, you can't put a price on that. And and I'm, yeah, not where I should be, but I thank God for where I am. And a lot of that was to, to my dad and my mom, my mom and dad. Um, so I say that all the pastors I ever had, yeah, I won't mention them, but like, I thank God for them because they all had such an important impact on my life. I had a professor in undergrad, Scott Haferman. He was incredible. And he... Somehow between le- lessons, I would just go to his office and sit down with him for hours and he would give me hours. And I'd be like, but what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And what about that? And he was the first person to teach me how to put the Bible together, to read the Bible together as a book. Yeah, he was the one that suggested I go and study in America. So like I owe lots of, yeah, lots, lots to him. And then my wife, like Kiton has been such a blessing to me in my Christian journey. You know, when you're married, you can't hide. And so to have someone that knows me and yet still committed to me, but most importantly, pointing me to Christ, yeah, I wouldn't be where I am in my Christian journey without her. So yeah, I kind of cheated, but yeah. That's awesome though. And we we just praise God for giving you godly influences in your life. I know you're thankful for them and through you, we are thankful for them too. And I am just so grateful for how you have lifted our eyes to Jesus, to his word, I feel like John 1, 29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what you've done. You've led us to behold the goodness of Christ. And I'm just so grateful for that. I know our listeners are grateful for that too. So we are just so thankful for you joining us on the Attorney Women podcast. Thank you, Yannick. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank you so much. It's a real joy to be here, honestly. We pray this episode encourages you to just linger long on the cross of Christ. If you enjoyed listening, man, hit us up on socials at Journey Women Podcast. Check out our website, which has loads of resources, journeywomenpodcast.com. And leave us a rating and review on iTunes like this one from Erin Elizabeth that says, this is a podcast I kept hearing great things about. When I started listening, I found out why. I never miss an episode and have listened to some multiple times. There are numerous times I've heard something on here and been encouraged to open my Bible and learn more. Thank you, Aaron. That's the exact reason why we do this podcast. Reviews like yours really do help get the podcast into the hands of other women who might find it helpful on their journeys to glorify God. Hey, this episode was edited and sound designed by the team at SoundOn Studios. You can find out more about their work at soundonsoundoff.com. We are so grateful for them and for you. It's a joy to get to journey alongside you guys. We can't wait to see you here next Monday. Have a great week.